Good morning, everyone. And uh, maybe you saw in the news that this past week, um, there was a man who went with his friends to an upscale restaurant in New Jersey, the Ashford, uh, for, for lunch. And when he got there, he was told that he couldn't go inside uh, because he was wearing sweatpants. And so he had to dine at, the, dine at the tables outdoors, which he was fine with until he saw a group of white men who were also all wearing sweatpants and backwards hats and allowed to be seated within this upscale restaurant. And just in case you didn't know, Charles and his friends were all black. And so in his words, he said, at first I saw others dining outside as well. So if this is the dress code, of course, I totally understand. But when I see these guys walk right in, it felt blatant and disrespectful. And so unfortunately, this story isn't uncommon. We see preferential treatment happen in our world all the time. But it's worse when we see it happen within a church, when Jesus calls his followers to live very differently from the world around us. And so in today's passage, Jesus is going to hold up a mirror for us and call us to take a very hard look at ourselves as we ask the Holy Spirit to perform holy surgery on our hearts and on our hands. So would you turn in your Bible, if you would, to James chapter 2. We're in this series called Vibrant, where we're looking at how faith that continues to work even when life around us does not. And we saw that the beginning of this book, there's this tendency in us to become very nearsighted in the face of difficulties. And so we need a new lens to see our circumstances and our lives through heaven's eyes. And so vibrant faith perseveres even through the trials and troubles of life by living out God's wisdom, which blooms in us, God-honoring, life-giving perspectives and practices. Last time, we saw that when we are wounded by unrighteous people and circumstances, that you and I can become tempted to become sinful in our anger. But as we receive his word in us, that meekness before God is the antidote to our rage against men. And so Jesus calls us to turn our passions instead for personal justice towards caring for the needy, for personal integrity that's unstained by the world. And today he's going to continue that thought about living out God's wisdom and righteousness through how we treat people with integrity who are different than us. And so uh, we're going to backtrack to the end of chapter one a little bit to give us a little bit of context. So let's read actually from chapter one, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So let's stop right there for a minute. It's continuing the thought that we were studying in chapter one, that one way that you and I live out God's word in how we treat others with integrity is how we deal with the issue of partiality. Now, in some of your translations, some of your Bibles translate it as favoritism, but that's actually kind of a weak form of the word. Uh, literally, in the original language, the word means to receive someone according to their face. That's literally that, what that word means. And so, to give you a working definition, partiality is when we judge and treat someone as either better than or worse than others based on their external appearance or circumstances. And so you and I, we often make snap judgments about people because of the color of their skin or their gender 
or their age or their education level, or perhaps even their marital status. If they appear emotionally healthy or if they appear financially wealthy. And that determines how we give preferential treatment or prejudicial treatment towards that person. That is partiality. And so we see here in verse 1 that there's a command that we would not practice such discrimination, especially in the body of Christ. That in verse 1, he intentionally starts off by addressing the recipients as brethren, as brothers and sisters, as family, as equals in Christ. So you equal brothers and sisters, show no partiality amongst you as you hold on to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to catch that. What he's saying there is, in other words, you can hold on to Jesus or partiality, but not both. You can be faithful or partial, but not both. And so you remember that the book of James is about the outward expression of our life, reflecting the inner condition of our faith in Jesus. And that includes in this passage that the behavior of partiality is incompatible with the belief in Jesus. That if you receive Jesus genuinely as your Savior and Lord, then you have to receive other people equally, regardless of their station or their stature in life. And this is a big deal for the audience that received this letter back then because James wrote to Jewish believers in an age where you could be despised based on your ethnicity or nationality, that you would despise other people based on their socio-economic background or their religious background. You see, back then, people were regularly and permanently categorized as Jew or Gentile, as slave or free, as rich or poor, as Greek or barbarian or whatever the case may be. And a significant aspect of the work of Jesus is to break down those dividing walls to bring forth one new family in Christ, united together under the banner of Jesus. Now, you should be starting to think about what do your relationships with people look like? Are they partial and preferential? Does that mean that I can't have closer friendships with some people or uh, be closer friends with someone at church? Is that too preferential? Well, we know that uh, that's not the case. Jesus did, right? Of the multitudes of people that followed Jesus, he only picked 12 to be his disciples. And then of those 12, He would spend the most time with three, James, John, and Simon Peter, who got to experience amazing things like his transfiguration as he revealed his glory or during the night before he was betrayed, before he was crucified, uh, when he went up to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, he only took those three. So that's not what partiality is about. It's not that it's wrong to have closer friendships with certain people. So what does partiality look like? Well, our brother James, the author of this book, gives us an illustration. Let's pick up in verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? 
Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let's stop right there. So in verses 2 and 3, James wants us to imagine two people step into your church. Maybe they come in a little bit late. One, because they want a lot of attention. The other, because they're just trying to slip in and they don't want any attention. And you're the greeter that morning and you're tasked with seating visitors. Consciously or not, we're likely, likely to treat them differently simply based on their appearance. And so you say to one, welcome, you look important. Let me find you a good seat. And then to the other person, well, you look and smell different. Uh, just go sit somewhere where you won't draw attention or cause commotion. And, uh, and uh, well, this is a new worship center, so please don't mess up these new sanctuary seats. You see, consciously or not, we often make those kind of choices and it affects and influences our treatment of others. And so Brother James, Pastor James, who writes this letter, he asks a series of questions to help us reevaluate ourselves and our motives. So first of all, in verse four, he says about through our preferences and prejudicial treatment of others, haven't we made distinction? In other words, haven't we drawn a discriminating line between our fellow believers in the same family in Christ and in so doing set ourselves up as a judge with questionable thoughts, undesirable thoughts? James says evil thoughts. Well, that's kind of harsh. What do you mean by that, Brother James? Instead of being unstained by the world, we're acting just like it by treating some people with greater honor and greater attention than we're judging the other person as being less valuable who God says is equal, is family in Christ. And so the point of this section is that partiality assigns value to people based on the world standard instead of God's. And I want you to see that, that it's not harmless, it's not neutral. It's us pronouncing a verdict upon someone that when two people came to church, that we measured their spiritual worth based on their earthly wealth. We assign their internal dignity based on their external qualities. And the word of God says that's evil. So what does God consider valuable and honorable? Well, second question in verse 5. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this life to be rich in faith? Now, I want you to catch this because you're going to misunderstand this as saying that, well, being poor is more righteous than being rich. That's not what it's saying. But back then, there was this false belief that if you were rich, that must mean you're right with God and that God has blessed you with prosperity. And that if you're poor, you must be sinning against God and cursed with poverty. And so what it's not saying here is that being rich is more righteous to God than being, uh, excuse me, being poor is more righteous uh, to God than being rich. Because we see in the Bible that there's righteous and unrighteous rich people. There's righteous and unrighteous poor people. But we do know that It's difficult to be rich in faith when you are rich in wealth because we're often, for those of us who have more resources, too busy with managing our money or too self-sufficient having money to truly trust and depend on Jesus on a regular basis. And so what this passage is talking about is, have you ever been in the position where you don't have enough money to pay your rent or to pay your bills or to pay for medical treatment? For someone like that, do you have any trouble praying, help me, God, my world is crumbling, and all I have is you? 
You see, when your circumstances are dire, when your finances are depleted, when you're emotionally despairing, God says to someone like that, for those who love Jesus, you have a high spiritual position. How so? Because you get a lot of practice trusting God to continuously come through for your needs. That living by faith is a daily reality because apart from Christ, there is no plan B. Poor in this world, but rich in faith. And the second half of verse 5 says that not only are you rich, are the poor rich in faith, but they're also fellow heirs to the kingdom of God. That Christianity isn't built on an economic model where you get what you pay for. It's built on, if Jesus is your God, then he gives grace thoroughly, completely, equally to all. You see, we live in a world where we're often defined by you are what you drive or what you make or what you wear. But Jesus says, If you are poor in this life, you can receive dignity today in him. And as an heir, you receive an inheritance beyond your imagination in the life to come. Verses 6 and 7, Brother James gives us two more questions. Aren't the rich the ones who are pressing you? And aren't the rich the ones who are blaspheming Jesus? And so he's saying to this Jewish Christian audience, That the very people that they're looking up to are the very people who are looking down on them. You see, they experienced from those who were powerful and influential because they had come to follow Jesus. They were barred from businesses or they were, they have, these were the people who were taking their property, who were persecuting them spiritually. These are the people who are antagonistic towards you and towards Jesus. So why are you fawning over them with your attention and your devotion like the rest of the world does? You see... With these last two questions, James is identifying the problem that you and I, we often pander to people for the wrong reason because of their celebrity or their influence. And God assesses honor and worth differently than we do. And so the question is, do we treat people according to his values or the world's? You see, in Christ, the rich and the poor come together in the church There's no preferential seating for the rich. There's no punishment seating for the poor. We sit together as an expression of the dignity and the grace of Christ for all. And I want you to see that this is a gospel issue. That if you understand your own spiritual poverty and ruin before God, your need for compassion and grace and a sacrificial Savior, then it would be reflected in how we treat those who are in financial poverty and ruin, expressed in compassion, and grace, and even sacrifice. Now, I also want you to see here that James uses money as an illustration, but the command is that we would not show any kind of partiality. That back then, it was common to discriminate against people based on their riches and their race. And so what we find is is that it's not much different from our world today. Isn't that true? that it's easy to, easy to be warm and welcoming to people if they're the right socioeconomic standard of living, if they have the right skin tone, if they're the right age, if they're the right marital status. And so perhaps a good diagnostic tool for us this morning is who you spend time with, who you include, and who you don't. Because our actual practices reveal our hidden biases. And so I want you to even think about when you Come to church. Maybe I know we haven't gathered together in person in a year, but I want you to think about who do you talk to and 
Who do you avoid at church? Who do you invite and who do you ignore for lunch after church? And what needs to change? And we don't want to just talk about the outward behaviors. Let's move a little bit deeper. Let's move from the root of behavior, the fruit of behavior to the root of what's in our hearts. And so I'm going to give you a test. And what I want you to do right now is to listen to these statements and then fill in the blank for yourself and fill in the blank with what you really think. So let's start with this. The problem with the poor people is, and maybe if you are a little bit more poor in life, you can fill in the blank differently. The problem with rich people is, what is that thought that comes to mind? The problem with the opposite gender is, or the problem with the opposite political party is, or let's go even to a little bit more controversial territory. I want you to fill in the blank for this in your mind this morning. The problem with black people is, or the problem with white people is, or the problem with Latino people is, or the problem with Asian people is, whatever ethnic group is different than yourself that you tend to shy away from. What is the problem that you see about that that group of people? And I want you to see that the Bible is trying to capture here that you you and I are making value judgments on people based on external factors, as if everyone uniformly in a group of people exhibits, exhibits certain character or traits, and we are assigning value to that person based on our prejudiced thoughts. Now, consider how does Jesus see them? How does Jesus treat someone? as beloved, as treasured, as valued, as brother or sister, as a fellow heir, equal in dignity and value to him. How does that change how we see and treat people when we understand Jesus' value for them versus what the world says about their value? Now, I know it's easy for us sometimes there's, to see there's so much prejudice in the world and in the news that we get riled up about, but that's not the point of this passage. It's not about other people. This is a mirror that Jesus is holding up for us, his followers. And so what are we to do? Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So in verse 8, it clearly shows us the opposite of partiality is loving your neighbor. We remember in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, that Jesus reveals 
what the greatest commandment of God is and the second greatest commandment of God. To love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That is the first and greatest commandment. It sums up a lot of God's commands, our relationship with him. And he says the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. And that together, these two things sum up all the law and prophets, all the word of God, all the commandments of God. And so we see in verse 9 that by showing partiality, showing the opposite of loving our neighbors, we are committing a sin. And I want you to hear that. It's not a preference. It's sin. Come on, James. Aren't you making a big deal out of a small thing? It's not like I killed somebody. Selective love for your neighbor is not love at all, according to the Bible. In verses 10 and 11, it describes for us the self-delusion of selective obedience. It's like being somebody who is a murderer and then defending yourself. Well, at least I didn't commit adultery. But God's word declares that you don't get to pick and choose. That it's not a comparison or a competition. It's all sin. And when you break one, that means you've broken God's law in its entirety. And so I think about it this way. Because I know sometimes we think of ourselves in comparison to other people's sin or, or worse sin, so to speak. When I was in high school, I took the AP Biology exam that maybe some of you uh, who are younger have taken or uh, have recently taken or are taking. Now, the proctor of that group during the break in between sections allowed our group to take a break by going outside of this portable that we were all taking it in for a few minutes. And it was a huge mistake. Here's why. You see, as soon as we stepped outside, one of the students in my class revealed that they were secretly able to peek into the following questions uh, of the exam. And so a bunch of the students uh, in my group, they, in, outside of the, this portable, they were opening up their textbooks and their notebooks, and they were having discussion about how to answer these questions. And uh, accordingly, uh, were able to do really well, they thought, on, on the test. But here's the problem. Several of them got caught and they were immediately disqualified. Their tests were destroyed, and they were sent home. Now, can any one of them say, well, you know what, that guy cheated on all the questions. I only cheated on one, so can I keep the results to my exam, the rest of my exam? And the answer, of course, is no. By breaking the rule in even one area, you're disqualified entirely in all areas. And so James is making a big deal out of partiality. He even kind of puts it in uh, the same company with murder and adultery just to give you kind of a picture of the seriousness of God's law. Because God's law is a transcript of God's character. And so our prejudice reveals the tilt of our souls. That by practicing it without remorse, that we become flagrant lawbreakers against God. So then how should we live? Look at verse 12. So speak and so act as if we are being judged by God's law. In other words, we are held accountable for what we do to love our neighbors and to love one another, including what we say to people and what we say about people. And that's important that you see that loving your neighbor includes not just our actions, but our words. Because Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty convicted right now and feeling a little bit fearful. So how then should you and I speak and act so that we're not being partial? Look at verse 13. 
It says that we receive judgment without mercy if we show no mercy. In other words, if we tend to be unmerciful towards people who are different or disadvantaged. Oh, you're on the outside looking in? Well, that's not my problem. You need to try harder and do better. Be more like me and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Then if you are like that, unmerciful, then you have great reason to fear. Because what verse 13 is saying is, is that you may not be a genuine follower of Jesus. You may not be actually saved. Because if you genuinely have received the mercy of God, it changes you. It changes how you treat other people. And an unmerciful spirit reveals a heart that has not experienced the great mercy of God. And you'll be subject to the judgment of God at the end of your life. Now, this sounds like a detour, but it is actually answering the question, how should we speak? How should we act instead of showing partiality? And so the principle here is that those who have received God's mercy show it to others. Now, let's clarify some things. What does it mean here when James talks about showing mercy? What does, it mean, what does he mean by mercy? And I want you to think back to when you received and believed Jesus as your Savior. There was a moment where you recognized that you are devastated and separated from God by sin. That there's nothing I can do to cross that incredible chasm. So instead, by what Jesus has done at the cross, that God has shown us tremendous mercy. He's given us forgiveness of our sins and a reconciled relationship. We get to live eternally. We're welcomed into his family. That God's mercy in Christ is the only thing that can fulfill his judgment against our sin. So that's why mercy triumphs over judgment. So, God's tremendous mercy is this, that he gave us what we need instead of what we deserve. A heaping dose of unearned grace and compassion and kindness. Sacrificially, he gives us complete and total acceptance in Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. So in the same way, we show mercy to other people by giving them what they need instead of what we think they deserve. Because often what we think people deserve is based on false, preconceived, prejudging, prejudgmental, prejudiced notions. And so we also show mercy by giving people what they need instead of what we think they deserve. Unearned grace, compassion, and kindness. Complete and total acceptance in Christ. What about if they commit such and such sins and have such and such lifestyle? We don't receive the sin. We show acceptance to the sinner. When we give people that kind of love towards people, we give that in place of partiality. And do you have any idea how powerful it is when people experience the life-transforming mercy of God through us? There's a man named Daryl Davis. He is a Christian as well as a renowned musician. I got to play with people like Benny King and and Jerry Lee Lewis and um, other very famous musicians. But he would tell you that his life was shaped by two events. First, when he was 10 years old, he was the only black Cub Scout in a parade. And he was very confused as he was marching in this parade as a 10-year-old boy when he was bombarded with rocks and cans and debris, 
simply because of the color of his skin. Years later, he was playing piano at a, a local bar when a white man approached him and said, you know, you are the best black man that I've ever heard play like Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, a very famous white musician. And so he kindly explained that, you know, uh, Lewis got his style and influence actually from black blues piano players. And so this man interested in this conversation invites him back to his table and they continue to talk. And as they do, uh, this man who invited him says, you know, this is the first time I've ever sat down with and had a drink with a black man. And Daryl was kind of confused. Well, why? Why is that? And it turned out that this man who was talking to was a card-carrying member of the Ku Klux Klan. And yet, he enjoyed the conversation so much that afterwards, every time that Daryl came to play at this specific bar, he would give this man a call, and that man would come down with his friends, including his KKK friend, uh, friends, and they would hang out together and enjoy each other's company. These two incidents shaped the purpose and direction of his life as a follower of Jesus, as he would spend the next 30 years befriending clansmen, changing hearts and minds, one racist at a time. And so he would go to KKK rallies. He would invite clansmen to his home. He would visit them in their homes. He would call some of them friend, even as they called him worse things. And all told, over these past 30 years, he's convinced more than 200 members of the clan to give up their robes. 200 people. One time, he picked up the daughters of this incarcerated clan's member at the airport and then drove them to a prison so that they could visit their dad. Their family noticed that none of his clan colleagues served them and loved them as much as Davis did. And their ideology of hate collapsed in the face of undeserved compassion and mercy. And if you're interested in learning more, there's a documentary that you can watch called Accidental Accidental Courtesy about his life. Who do you need to show the mercy of Christ to today? The tremendous acceptance and grace and kindness and the sacrifice of God that God has shown us at the cross. What will that look like for you? There was a church that had a sign in front of it that said, Jesus only. And one night a storm blew out the first three letters so that all that was left was us only. And too many churches have come to that today. If all the people in your friendship circle look just like you, have the same level of education and income, there's a good chance that you are practicing the sin of partiality more than you think. So I want to ask you, where is the Holy Spirit putting pressure on your heart this morning? And I want to implore you to consider what needs to change that you might honor the Lord of glory and people who he's made in his image with dignity and value, and people who are coming to Christ who are different than you, who are equal in value before the Lord. Now, everyone has differences and preferences, but the behavior of partiality is incompatible with a belief in Jesus, that the world standards of how to 
treat people and how to value people are not gods. They are wicked. They are sinful. Instead, may we grow as people who have received and overflow God's mercy onto others because of Jesus. And I don't want you to think like, well, we just need to become more colorblind because in the body of Christ, Jesus does not erase diversity. He brings it together in unity in his family, as we see in Revelation chapter 7, when there is people of all different tribes and tongues and languages worshiping before the Lord together. And he gives us the opportunity to show in this world that there is a better way to live and to relate to one another that can only be found in the person and in the work of Jesus. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you would be gospel people who live out a love for neighbors that wipes down all the arguments of partiality that is the standard of the world around us. May we live for the gospel. May we live out the glory of Jesus. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, would you help us to slow down for a moment before we move on to the next thing and and been entertained by a message instead of seeing it as something that tickles our ears or maybe even stirs up our heart for a moment, like watching a good TV show. Help us to slow down and reflect and sit in your presence and allow your Holy Spirit to do his work in us. God, I am convicted and guilty. Would you help us, Lord? to see all the ways that we give some people preferential treatment and others prejudicial treatment, and that it is not right. Lord, I know that you're not saying to us not to have closer friends or or that we can't have uh, healthy boundaries with toxic people. That's not what you're saying to us. But help us, Jesus, to see how do we look at people who are different than us especially when they come to church? How do we treat them differently as if someone is of greater or lesser value than others? May we not be like the world around us. May we be unstained from the world, Lord. And so I ask you once again to help us picture in our minds, Holy Spirit, would you show us How do we look at people differently? How do we categorize and generalize people that have a problem with rich people or poor people or or this gender or this political party or, or black people or white people, Latino people, Asian people? God, help us to see how we impose the world's value onto people rather than seeing them through your eyes. Our brother, our sister, our equal, our fellow heir, Heavenly Father, we, re- we repent of the sin of partiality. Help us to focus less on the wrong of others. Come before you ourselves. Would you transform us? Help us to remember once again the tremendous mercy you poured out on us. And when we 
didn't deserve it. You gave us what we need. So much grace, so much acceptance. You're so sacrificial in your kindness. God, as we remember, may it change us once again. May it overflow onto people around us. May the light of Christ shine brightly. We repent of our prejudices, Lord. Now help us to live it out with our hands, with our words, in ways that honor you, that show the tremendous mercy of Christ to others. Even as we sing this next song, Lord, would you do surgery on us? In Jesus' name, amen.